Would you please turn your Bible to Romans chapter 15 and look with me at verse number 8. Romans 15 and the 8th verse. The word of the Lord says, in Romans 15, 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You can be seated and children, you can go to children's church at this time. If you would like, you can go up this door here and there's a hallway down this way and the kids will meet down uh, in their classrooms and at the end of the service, you can uh, go pick them up, please. At church, when we have guests here, we give this book away. It's not an incredibly thick book. It's worth purchasing to give away. We buy cases of these. The title is What? is the gospel. And it's a question that we want to be sure that everyone knows the answer to. And this particular book lays out eight chapters describing not only what the gospel is, but what our response is to that gospel. The author writes in the preface of the book that he wishes that there was not a need for a book like that. That when we said, well, you know, the gospel... Everyone would say, well, sure, we know what the gospel is. It should be a little bit like asking a group of construction workers what a hammer is. It should be easy to describe. Unfortunately, there is a need for a book like that. I think that when it comes to the gospel, sometimes we confuse the gospel with its effect or it's delivery. That the gospel is something we do, not something that is. Here, in this section of Romans 14 and 15, we have been discussing unity in the church in those things that are essential, doctrinal, absolutes. Unity. However, Romans 14 and 15 is stressing that there are some things that we would not consider to be essential. And in those things, it is okay to have diversity and even harmony. But in everything, charity. Romans 15 verses 8 and 9. I'm just going to take these two verses. And the title is The Gospel. In other words, how is a church like this one supposed to be absolutely united in essentials, contently diverse in non-essentials, and in all things charitable? The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing what the gospel is and how it shapes the people of God is my intent from Romans 15, 8 and 9. I want to start by pointing out that Romans 15 has already said that Christ is before us 
as the example. Now, here's what I want to be careful with. I do not want to preach Christ in a way that you hear me say, look how spectacular Christ's character is. You should try to do better. I I have no interest in preaching that way. Because that is not the theme of the gospel. The theme of the gospel is not, look at Jesus Christ and clean yourself up a little bit. The gospel is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ for us, cleansed from unrighteousness. Christ among us, unifying us in that one blood sacrifice. So, we have here a description of Christ, but not for the intent that we would try to do better because he's impressive. But rather as a description of what is true of Christ's followers. What I mean by that is my intention is not to pressure you into being better people because Christ is impressive, but there might be some convicting confession that if that's who Christ is, what's going on in his church? Okay? So, our sanctification... Is a process of us becoming. Christ is human being. We are human becoming as we are being transformed into his likeness. So look with me at at chapter 15. Right away in verse 1, the context starts with, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak for their good, to build them up. We have this obligation. This is the testimony of Christ. Galatians 6.2 Bear each other up and fulfill the law of Christ. Operate according to the reality that's worked in you. Be consistent in Christ's likeness. So we have this obligation. Look at 15.3 Christ did not please himself. Not only an example, but a reminder that he has worked in us to build us up. Verse 4 This was written in former days for our instruction. So we are getting instructions. There is application. Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you harmony. This comes from God. This is not a self-help lesson. The God who we pray to is a God of endurance and encouragement granting us harmony. Verse 6. That together you may with one voice glorify God. This is confidence that he will surely do it as he is jealous for his glory. Verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as it is Christ who has already laid all of the foundation in welcoming you for the glory of God. We are already welcomed together because of Christ. And then verse 8 and 9. Explains how Christ Unites together diversity. And the example continues as it was in Romans 14, Jews and Gentiles. Christ has accepted both Jews and Gentiles, becoming a minister, a servant to the circumcised in order to confirm the promises of God so that the Gentiles and Jews alike would not focus on their difference, 
but glorify God in unity. So the gospel, the gospel. First and foremost, it is a message about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Christ. But it is not. I don't know if this is subtle or obvious. But I think it is a potential, right? That we would perceive Christ in the gospel story as the solution to a God problem. Now I say that and you go, no. Let me describe what I mean. If it weren't for God's holiness, everything would be okay. But God being so holy and just, now I'm held accountable for the stuff I do. So Jesus is the hero. That is not the gospel. God is not to be solved by Jesus Christ. God is the gospel. It is the good news that God is true. It is the good news that those dead in their sins can come to life and sing his praise. The gospel. Let me give you three parts. The first one is this. The gospel is our spoken message of Christ. The gospel is our spoken message of Christ. And as I walk through these three, my prayer is that you'll see the way each one of them completely equips us to every good work and righteousness. That we would be a faithful Christian testimony of Christ. So, the gospel is our spoken message of Christ. He says right away in the first part of verse 8, I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. I tell you. He introduces the reason. This is the message that we herald. Christ has become servant to the circumcised. The servanthood of Christ. Philippians 2.8 says that Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. This is his service to, he says, the circumcised. Jesus Christ, of course, is servant. In Mark 10, 45, the son came not to be served, but to serve. Serving in, in the way that we would expect. It's not, a, it's not an unusual word. It's the word that's used all the time. Uh, like the way a, a deacon serves church. What I want to focus on for the rest of this point is we speak this message. Christ came to serve the weak. Christ came to serve the weak. And he refers to the circumcised. By the time Paul's writing, this means not only that Christ has completed the covenant work of Jew and Gentiles being united together in God. That's true. That's true. But as it relates to this context, being referred to as the circumcised is an expression of religious confidence that always fails us. Confidence in man's religions that always disappoint. Listen to what I mean. 
as it's a reference to their weakness, not just a reference to how both Jew and Gentile are precious to God and brought together in covenant. Well, that's true. It's true throughout Scripture. Christ becoming a servant to the weak is a reference to those who had come to depend on the shadow more than the reality. Here would be a modern, it's hard for us to relate to that. Here would be a modern day application. He says, I've come to be a servant to the churchgoers. In other words, there's a group of people who are more content and secure in the fact that they attend church than in the fact that they belong to the church. The body of Christ, right? So there is this group of people who is putting more confidence in their religious exercises than what circumcision pointed to, which was a sign of the covenant, the heart change. Let me, let me walk you through this. Uh, you want to take your Bibles to Acts 15, and we'll read verse 1 and 2, and we'll see a little bit of the problem. This problem led to what we know as the First Jerusalem Council. The first time all the church leaders got together, all the Christ followers got together in Jerusalem and said, okay, there's a problem, what's the solution? Acts chapter 15 and verse number 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you can't be saved. And after, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Well, this, does this seem like an odd cross-reference in a sermon about unity? And then Paul and Barnabas took them to task and argued till they were flat out of breath. No, because remember, please, we are not saying diversity in essentials. So when it comes to doctrinal absolutes, the Christian faith itself, there's not room for disagreement. There's not. But, this chapter is dealing with these preferences, these opinions. So, after Paul and Barnabas have this debate, in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this very question. Paul addresses the issue in Galatians 6. You want to turn your Bible ahead a couple chapters to Galatians chapter 6 and look with me at verse 13. Galatians 6.13 For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Look how religious our people are. They do these religious acts. Essentially is what verse 13 says. 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So Christ came to this people who thought religious practice was beneficial to them in their salvation would be counted as merit for them. And then, let's get into Romans here and see his most immediate context. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 25. Paul had said in a section where he's talking about, is there benefit in being Jewish or religious? So in Romans 1, 2, and 3, that was a subsection of the gospel where we were being consistently reminded of our sinfulness. And then he raises this little caveat. Well, well, what about people who are religious? And here is part of that answer. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, in other words, if you're a sinner, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Christ became a servant to people stumbling over religious accomplishments. When Paul says that Christ's serves the circumcised, there are two applications for us. Jesus Christ did this. First, Jesus Christ became an example to us. Jesus Christ became a living example of patient endurance with weak and feeble people. This is the head of the church, Jesus Christ, an example of slowly edifying people in discipleship. Second application, not only is that what Christ did in an example, the second, it emphasizes the nature of covenant community. To say, Christ became a servant to the circumcised, is to make it very clear that Christ is bringing together a really diverse group. We don't have time today to go to Ephesians, but we could talk about how Christ worked to bring those who were far away and Christ worked to bring those who were near and broke down the hostility by, by laying aside the ordinances and all the religious practices that some people thought made them righteous before him and bringing them together as one people in Christ. That is another application. We have come together as followers of Christ, as adopted children, heirs of promise, with a lot of diversity and a lot of organic unity. What I mean by that is who we are in this new nature, new creation. In Christ, we start from the position of united because we are bound together in Christ. Here's what, regarding this gospel of Jesus Christ and how it applies to our interactions, here's what Robert Mounts says on this paragraph. It should not be too difficult to extend a hand of friendship to one who is loved by the one we honor and worship. It really shouldn't seem like we're asking too much to say to each other, embrace the one who is loved by the one we worship. 
he goes on and says, we might say, any friend of his is a friend of mine. This spirit of brotherly kindness will bring praise to God who makes it all possible in the first place. This good news that binds us together is a message of Jesus Christ. Second, the gospel is a message of God's truth. It is first, a message that is spoken about Jesus. It is second, a message of God's truth. Again in verse 8. Christ came, he makes himself a servant to the circumcised in order to, here's a purpose statement, to show God's truthfulness. I'm not sure how many various English translations of the Bible are present in the room, but I would, I would venture a guess that there are no less than three various interpretations in the room right now of that statement. God's truthfulness. Some of your Bibles may say, in the interest of God's truth, in order to prove God's honesty, or to show God's truthfulness, or in the vindication of God's truth, or something like that. It's a hard statement to interpret. Here's what I know. Paul is saying that the work of Christ in some way promotes God as true. That God is true. He says, this is to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. God said things to the patriarchs. Jesus proves that those things were true. Listen to Romans 1.16. This statement about God's truthfulness is a fundamental confession of the gospel. God is altogether good. God is altogether right. Romans 1.16. Paul, in making his thesis statement, like what's Romans? It's this. Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel has proven the righteousness of God. Jesus comes and seals in his blood the completion of promise, and God is proven righteous. Everything God has promised is fulfilled. In Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Paul asks a rhetorical question and says basically this. So we're back in Romans 3. Remember, I told you Romans 3 is kind of the question about, well, what about religious people? Are, are they sinners? Or, or what about religious people? What about when they don't do what's right? What about when Jewish people don't do what's right? Aren't those the unique people of God and now they've sinned, they've rebelled and rejected him? Does that make God untrue? That's Romans 3, 1 and 2. Does, does the unbelief of these people bring a blemish to God, his character? And Paul answers the question. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, he answers 
with an exclaimed, May Genata. May that never be. In English, it translates by no means. Let God be true, though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. For anyone who wants to call to question the character, the goodness, the righteousness of God, let them find that God is true and righteous. Paul says it is absolutely impossible for God to be anything but true. All of the lies and all of the misrepresentation of God's promises, of the gospel, of Jesus Christ, anything that is untrue will not distort the gospel and will not make God unfaithful. 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The gospel is a message of God's truth. Here's what that means for all of us right now. And I want you to listen closely, especially if you're sitting here this morning and you're not sure that you have the hope of the gospel that Jesus Christ has made for you a way of salvation. You're not sure if you are saved. And that's Sunday school teachers and church members and visitors. And you might not be sure that you are saved. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins. The word confess is homo legamen. Homo, same. If you confess, if you say what God says, he will forgive your sin. What does God say? Well, for starters, just in Romans, where we are, in Romans 3, the Bible says, all of us have sinned, and therefore we are deficient. We fall short of the mark, the glory of God. Romans chapter 6 says, the punishment for our sin is death. And the Bible, throughout Scripture, tells us that God is altogether holy. To be completely separated from evil and sin. Unstained by sin. So, 1 John 1, 9. If you say the same thing God says. If you say, yes, God is true. I am a sinner. And he is holy. And the chasm that is established between wickedness and holiness cannot be traversed by all of the good works of a thousand lifetimes. But there is one go-between, one mediator between sinful man and holy God. And he is Christ Jesus. The gospel is God being true. All those who confess are forgiven. All those who say the same thing he says, God, you are true. I am a sinner. I, 
Listen, I want, this is a caveat that might bear eternal significance, okay? This is a, a little clarification. I did not say you have sinned. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says I am a sinner. I am a sinner. How do you know? I would give you two reasons or two illustrations that prove my sin. One is I sin because I'm a sinner. So if I wasn't a sinner, I would not sin. But I do sin and it proves I'm a sinner. Second, if in fact I was not a sinner, I would not die. Romans chapter 6 says the wage of sin is death, but the gift is eternal life. If I were not a sinner, I would be immortal. I wonder this morning if you would just say the same thing God says. I am a sinner, and he is holy, and the only bridge between those two spectacular distinctions is Jesus Christ. Number one, the gospel is what we say about Jesus. Number two, the gospel is the evidence, is the proof that God is true. God is true. And let everyone say he's not, it won't change the fact that he's true. Number three, the gospel message is for God's glory. Look with me again at verse number eight, we'll read eight and nine. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Now, there are two purpose statements right here, okay? We call them hinna clauses. You can see them. They're in order and in order. So verse 8, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And then in verse 9, and in order that Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ became a servant, confirming the truthfulness of God in order to confirm the promises of God. And that Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. These two purpose statements. In order to confirm the promise, this sums up what Jesus did with respect to the Jews. God had said to Abraham, I will bring about salvation through this promise. And Jesus is the completion of that promise. Jesus is the blessing of salvation's promise. Second purpose statement, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, that Gentiles might glorify God. Did you hear, did did you follow that? Christ became a servant to Jews so that we would glorify God? I don't, maybe, maybe we do have a couple People of Jewish heritage here? I don't know. I don't think so. The Christian church in Wausau is praising God because Christ became a servant to the Jews? What? Paul's already explained that. Take your Bibles back to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Would you look to verse 25? Romans chapter 11, verse 25. The promises to the patriarchs. 
and mercy shown to Gentiles is not two acts. I want to say that again. The promises to the patriarchs. Jewish patriarchs heard the promises of God and Gentile Christians are being saved. Those are not two separate acts. They're one act. The confirmation of the promise comes by the call of Gentiles. This is what Romans 11 says. Okay, take a deep breath. I don't want you to miss this. Sleepiness or distraction might cause us to miss this. Romans 11.25 I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. In fact, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, Look at verse 28 for time. As it regards the gospel, what we're talking about this morning, they, Jewish people, are enemies for your sake. But as it regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. That's the scripture explanation of what we're reading in chapter 15. What I said a moment ago, there is oneness in God's saving two groups of people. The promises to the patriarchs and the mercy shown to the Gentiles is not two acts, but one act. Confirmation of the promise comes by the call of the Gentiles. Only a holy God would do this. If we did not know the message of the gospel, the covenant of grace and redemption, and we were to sit in this room, all of us being theologians, unaware of the redemptive plan, and we set out to write out a way to redeem sinners where God is altogether holy, we would never get it as good as this. When it comes to diversity, when it comes to bringing groups of people together, listen to what happens. He takes groups that are they're antagonistic of each other. They do not respect or appreciate each other at all. There's a lot of animosity between the two groups. And here's what he does. God, Romans 11, God places over Jewish people a partial hardening of their hearts. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God, Romans 11, places a partial hardening over Jewish hearts. There is generations of hard-heartedness. And if you read the book of Acts, you find that what happens is the gospel floods out from their rebellion, their hard-heartedness, and the seeds of the gospel are sown among Gentiles, and they become believers. 
And then the religious people over here who had a partial hard-heartedness look at those people who are now in covenant relationship with their God and they get jealous. We want that. Okay, you can have it too. By faith alone, not by circumcision. By Christ, Jesus. Peter says, the one you crucified. That's not two acts. That's one act. At the same time, decreeing hardness of heart, harvesting fruit from Gentiles, is simultaneously producing jealousy and longing for the salvation that is in Christ. We often wonder at the amazing love of God. And it is wonderful, but it is not the whole gospel. The gospel has a God conclusion, and it is His glory. So we think about the love of God. It applies so radically to us. God's love is so spectacular. If I could illustrate it with a word picture, would you see God's love like a river? Crystal clear. Flowing in front of us. Oh, the love of God. We're every man on earth a scribe and every stalk a quill. And we're all of the skies, parchment. We would not have enough to articulate the love of God. The love of God. A flowing, radiant, crystal river. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? Would you, would you join me in Revelation chapter 22? This word picture is not original to myself. When I say that the things of God flow as like a crystal river, I am borrowing language from Revelation 22. And then in verses 1 through 5. Revelation 22, 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal. Can you see how clear and unblemished that water is? Wow. This is real. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the midst of the street of the city. Also on both sides of the river, there's a tree. Uh, The species of this tree is called the tree of life. And it has 12 kinds of fruit. Every month, one of the different fruits hangs on the branch. And the leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face And his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They'll have no light or lamp or sun or no need for. 
For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We are getting a description of the kingdom of God itself. Our eternal home. And from the place where God and the Lamb sit, a river flows. Crystal clear river. And that river is nourishing trees on both sides. And it runs everywhere in the kingdom. And trees are growing. And on those trees, there's fruit for us to enjoy. And there are leaves for sustaining, for providing for us. That river is spectacular. Where does it come from? The throne. The river comes from the throne. The place of God's power, the place of God's splendor, the place of God's glory. That is the fountainhead of the river that we enjoy called the amazing love of God. It comes from his glory. And just like here in Romans 15. Where does this good news of reconciliation to him and therefore union together, where does it come from? Where does that good news come from? Verse 9, that we might glorify God. The love of God. A spectacular crystal river. Its fountainhead is God's zeal for his own glory. If he were not jealous for his own glory, the river of his love for us would dry up and cease. These six verses, I think, give clarification to what exactly we mean when we say the gospel. It is not the effect. It is not people confessing. It is not the way we deliver. It is the spoken message of Christ himself proving, in fact, that God is true to the end of his own glory. We have this reminder of the gospel in the middle of a question about how we do church together. So, if I were to say, how will a group of people like this, who have so many different opinions about some stuff, how will they joyfully, sincerely, authentically get along? How will they keep walking together patiently? And Romans 15, 8 and 9 says, well, it's the gospel. It's, it's the gospel. It's Jesus. It's God. It's his plan. It's his providence. It's what he's doing. That's how. As a disciple of Christ, I would say, remember that Christ gave himself a servant for the weak. And be humble in acknowledging that that was us. Christ died for sinners, the ungodly. And then he says, by the power of the Spirit, we abound together in that truth. So as Christ's followers, as a church, Is our testimony honest among the unchurched? Is our testimony honest 
I believe it's 2 Peter 2, says this is the will of God, that your testimony be honest among the Gentiles. Is it honest? Are we acting together the way we say we're together? So as a disciple, a Christ follower, I would say speak and display the truth of Christ. Confirm in our operation that God, in fact, is true. He has broken down the wall of hostility. And then I would say, lastly, glorify God. Because this is the gospel. And this is what we say we believe. Because of Christ, we display that we believe it. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the truth of the good news. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I and we are foremost. And why has this mercy been poured out on us? That throughout the ages, into the age, our glorious God would display his long-suffering, patient mercy to the praise of his glory. So we are a church bearing your name. By your spirits working through the regeneration of our very soul, make us to live honestly. To be a faithful testimony to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.